1: Welcome back to New Books in Political Science. Again, my name is Heath Brown, and today I have the real pleasure to talk with Randall Schweller, who's the author of Maxwell's Demon and the Golden Apple, Global Discord in the New Millennium. Randy, how are you doing today?
0: Fine. It's a pleasure to be with you.
1: Yeah, it's a real pleasure to have read the book. I've been looking forward to talking to you about it, in part because this is a subject matter that isn't kind of in my Uh, wheelhouse, and so I I enjoyed learning some new things and and looking forward to learning some more today. Before we get to the book, maybe you could tell us just briefly about yourself, uh, where you are now, where you've been, anything uh, pertinent that you'd like to share?
0: Well, I'm a professor of international relations at Ohio State University. I've been here for 20 years in Columbus, Ohio, and I'm just in the process of taking over as editor-in-chief of security studies. Uh, It's a journal um in international relations a a top journal and that's going to present a a big challenge but i'm looking forward to it
1: yeah that's that's super we'll have to uh get you back if you guys are doing uh, book reviews we'd love to have you come back and talk about a couple of the books that are coming across your desk um Mm -hmm. and it's also i imagine nice to have gotten this out before all of that hard work starts
0: exactly Uh, the timing couldn't have been better right so such an interesting book um I wanted
1: to start with some small stuff, Um, something that that doing this podcast I've come to appreciate more than I ever did in the past, which is something as simple as the book's cover. Mm -hmm. I really love this cover. It's it's great. Um, For those who don't have the book, who haven't read the book yet, and and hopefully they will soon, would you briefly describe the cover and and what it represents about, about one of the central myths that you play with in the book?
0: Right. Um, I love the cover, too. Uh, I'm glad you like it. It's a bright yellow cover, which really catches your attention with some uh, red in it or orange, so it's a striking sort of bizarre cover that looks sort of like Night in a Funhouse or something, but it's actually a demon's face, a sort of a demon mask looking at itself and um, sort of uh uh, but it forms an apple. It's very clever that he would make a devil, uh, or a demon. Well, it's actually a devil that's, uh, looking at itself in its sort of a Janet faced way that, that turns out to be an apple. And the- who, who designed the cover? Uh, some of the Johns Hopkins, I don't even know, mm-hmm. but, uh, I was very grateful for because I I was very I'm very interested in the cover. I, I was sort of an art history major, almost as an undergraduate. So I'm very into art and uh, did some painting myself and had all kinds of ideas for the cover and. Um, they didn't actually give me a choice. They just said, This is the one we're going with. We really love it and uh so we hope you like it too. And and I did really love it. It doesn't look anything like a book in political science and the title obviously, Maxwell's Demon and the Golden Apple, is nothing like any book I've heard of in political science and I that's it it is a a mass marketed book on a very tricky subject, one that's very difficult for most people to get their head around, and that's entropy. It's a sort of ubiquitous topic. So let me just say how Maxwell's Demon... Maxwell's Demon is actually an allegory from the 19th century by uh, one of the founders, the uh, discoverers of entropy, this concept, this elusive concept called the second law of thermodynamics that affects everything in the universe. And what it basically says is that you know, in a closed system, the energy available for work will always dissipate over time. So things will sort of run out of steam over time. Um, it's just the way uh, systems are in the universe. It led to this theory of the big chill that we would all eventually all die of the big chill because the sun was going to burn out and energy was was dissipating. Um, now, Maxwell's theme is an allegory to sort of um, uh thwart this uh inexorable sort of dissipation of energy that was affecting the universe. It was a thought experiment. How how could you uh decrease entropy in a closed system? And um Maxwell's demon does this by he's a super sorter. He sorts things. He sorts molecules. Um it's kind of a strange I, I don't want to get into too much for this this kind of thing, but The point is that if you sort molecules and if you have someone ordering things in the world, an orderer, let's say, then you can stop the process of entropy from rising. And that's what the demon does by sorting molecules. He's an incredibly fast, nimble sorter and can put the fast molecules in one side of the box and the uh, slow molecules in another. And so things don't cool down they stay hot and the cool side stays cool so anyway um one one way to think of this is um if you had two val- if you had a, a color um Pure yellow in one tube and a ball, like I could say, and you had a tube connected to pure blue, and you opened the valve, the two sides would come together and produce a green color, and it would never go back to yellow and blue again. Um, That's sort of the 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 idea or if you mix cards together, you shuffle cards, you could never shuffle cards and get them perfectly ordered the way you might have a deck when you first open it. That's the idea of entropy that all things tend to get disordered and chaotic over time and and assume a sort of randomness to them Um, unless there's some purposive being that is ordering things for deliberate reasons, things go to seed. So that's the Maxwell's demon part. So So what about the golden apple? So the golden apple, which sounds like the good thing, the Maxwell's demon sounds like the bad thing, but it's actually a good thing because it it provides order in the world. That's what Maxwell's demon does. He provides order in a world that would naturally be chaotic. Now, the golden apple sounds like a good thing, but it's actually the goddess Eros threw the golden apple into a wedding that Zeus had not invited her to because Eros is the goddess of distemper, and she's very argumentative and brings bad vibes with her everywhere she goes um, so he didn't invite her to the wedding so to get back at Zeus she threw an apple into the wedding that said to the fairest and that meant so now all the goddesses particularly Hera, Aphrodite and Athena wanted to be crowned the fairest goddess and Zeus was supposed to do the picking and since he was married to Hera he didn't want to do that he knew he'd be in a bad position so he gave this task off to uh, Paris, uh, I believe, and, and Paris was supposed to pick between these three goddesses. And to make a long story short, he chooses Aphrodite, who promised him, if he chose her, uh, Helen of Troy, um, which started the Trojan War. So, it's kind of a, uh, a metaphor for chaos and disruption and, and all that.
1: Right. And, you know, this book ultimately is about world politics and international relations on some level. And there's a variety of theories, probably theories that people are, are more familiar with than some of the ideas that you're presenting here. So is there one of those approaches, one of the perspectives uh, that you take on most directly in this book? Is there a dominant theory that, that you're challenging? And we'll, we'll get to exactly sort of how you apply this, this, these uh, ideas of entropy and so forth. But is there is there a, a, a focus or a, a target for for your work
0: right yes um i'm actually thought of as a realist i am very much in the realist camp i've always been a self-described realist and my credentials have always been good but the when you say taking on a paradigm or perspective when i i started this book because i in some ways threw down the gauntlet to about uh, what I thought was realist theories and theories in general of international relations, international relations that I thought were not, uh, worthy of sort of, did not take account of changes since the digital revolution and were not like 21st century theories. They, they talked about, for example, realism talks about enduring principles, things that never change about states, that they seek power and security, they form alliances, things like that. Um, and I thought, well, sure, but the world has changed a lot since Napoleon died and, uh, and Otto von Bismarck. And so what we needed is a theory that, or well, of course, takes into account those timeless principles that they would understand, but that also modifies those principles somewhat to fit these enormous changes that have happened since the digital revolution, which I think is as powerful a revolution, more powerful maybe, than the industrial revolution. So realism I'm taking on in that sense. Now, liberalism I take on too. These are the two dominant perspectives, sort of yin and yang or Tweedledee and Tweedledum in the the field. So you have realism predicts sort of a world when today realists talk about a coming war with China or a return to the Cold War, sort of inevitable conflict and security dilemmas uh, because... China's a rising power and the United States is a declining power. Whenever you have these kind of power transitions, you get what are called hegemonic wars that are titanic struggles un- of unlimited means and, and ends to sort of see who's going to govern the world. So it's sort of this view, so someone like John Mearsheimer would see the world, he says war with China is inevitable. So he sees, you know, the U.S. eagle versus the Chinese dragon as the sort of view, the metaphor of what is coming in the future and what's defining our world. Liberals, on the other hand, see a world in which um, the emerging powers like Brazil and India and China will be integrated within this current liberal order that America has created since uh, in 1945 and has been managing ever since. And they say, well, we'll have a sort of co-managed international system that will integrate emerging powers and um, take some of the burden off the United States. And so we'll have sort of a multipolar, multi-partnership world. And so I don't think either of you is right. I think the realists are wrong because war is unthinkable these days. The cost of war is just too destructive. and the uh, And peace is too beneficial. To think about a war of of the old kind, of sort of hegemonic wars that we used to have, sort of World War One and Two, uh, and the uh, the Napoleonic Wars a hundred years before that, that kind of reordered the system. So I think that that will not happen. But I think liberals are too sanguine or too optimistic when they predict that the world will just be a happy place and we'll all be eating granola bars in a field somewhere that 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 world is not going to happen either they're right that there won't be any wars great power wars but because they're right they're wrong about the kind of world we're going to have because and this is the this, this kind of um... the counterintuitive point in the book is that Hegemonic wars, among many, actually, hegemonic wars are the only means in international relations that we know of, the only thing in international politics that creates order, that can create sort of a peaceful, ordered world, because it it, it performs several functions um, that nothing else can. It reminds me of Lewis Koser's notion that he had a book, a very famous book, called The Social Functions of Conflict. So the point is that war is not always bad in in terms of, when we think in terms of international order, for instance, a hegemonic war is necessary because it levels the old architecture. It's such an all, it's such a titanic global struggle that it just levels everything. And then it crowns a new king, in a sense, we call a hegemon, uh, that's both able and willing to provide order. And it clarifies who has power in the system, which is something that started the war in the first place. Because a war starts because the parties involved out of a dispute don't see or don't understand who really has power. And so they have to decide that issue on the battlefield. Well, after hegemonic war, there's usually just one great power left standing, and everybody else is in need of help and has been... Uh, in ruins, and so the world has been leveled, and you have a tabula rasa on which, uh, a hegemon can create a new global architecture, uh, that promotes order. So, um, so in that sense, the fact that, that liberals are correct that we won't have great power wars means, however, that we won't have global order either. We'll have a sort of global disorder. So in the book, I say, you know, it won't be the hell that realists think the future is going to be, and it won't be the heaven that liberals think it's going to be, but rather it'll be sort of a purgatory, but a, a, an, an endless purgatory of sort of disorder, aimlessness, and um, uh, unpredictability, sort of random things happening. Which is not terrible, there are worse things in the world, but it's certainly unpleasant because human beings like order and predictability.
1: So in this world that you describe, and and you, you touch on this sort of towards the end of the book, but I think it helps us to sort of make sense of this, who's likely to succeed? And who's likely to fail? And and I guess related to that, what are some of the international and domestic institutions that are needed to be compatible with this world that, that looks so different than the world that we've seen in the past? Uh,
0: well, that's in one of the parts of the book. Um, who will succeed? Who will fail? I don't think anyone will succeed. I think that this world that we're entering is one that doesn't have constraints on actors so actors aren't constrained in a sense that there are there's no um, there aren't huge costs and there aren't huge benefits to actions we're seeing that sort of with the administration today the obama administration that says you know they're basically the obama doctrine could be summarized as don't do stupid stuff and they have a very minimalist agenda of hitting singles and passing the baton which sort of frustrates the foreign policy elite in Washington but i don't think that it's their choice so much as they're just recognizing structural realities that there's not a lot to be gained and plenty to lose by getting very aggressive in a world that's quite unpredictable with lots of unintended consequences so we're not winning that's for sure the us isn't winning but um i feel that nobody's going to win in this world it doesn't crown a winner because the nature of power has changed to the point where and, and this gets back to U.S. foreign policy, it's very difficult to do positive things with power. You know, as a social scientist, we define power as getting others to do things they otherwise wouldn't do. Um, and now, that usually sounds like coercion. It's very difficult to do that in today's world, as we're finding out. But it's also difficult. Power also means the ability to get others to do things they otherwise couldn't do when we think of the Marshall Plan or things that are positive that power can do. Um, that's also going to be very difficult. It's just not power. – what power is these days is the ability to sort of frustrate, deny, and prevent others from doing things they want to do. So nobody wins. Nobody loses, but nobody is a winner in this world. And there is no sort of straightforward zero-sum contest. It's not just it's. – there is no us and them. It's sort of a free-for-all. Everyone's out for themselves. We see that again with our own allies who are spying on. There are no real true friends in the world. So I don't I don't think anyone wins or loses.
1: Yeah, and, and you know, you you um, write very much in, in the, the, the realm of security studies and international relations, but I, I I wonder if you've thought about the applicability of this this idea uh, to the more US Domestic scene. Um, are there ways that the ideas of, of entropy and, and some of the um, concepts that, that you play with in the book? Uh, have you thought at all about how they apply to you know, the u s domestic level
0: yes very much um in fact there's a sort of there's a macro level in the book which is about global politics and then there's a micro level of entropy um where i 'm talking about how entropy in particular information overload in a sort of digital world creates a sort of what I call an irremediable—well, what what was called by William James in 1899, an irremediable flatness coming over the world, where there's this general sense of banality and a loss of meaning in life, as information comes, kind of rains down on us faster and thicker every day. And so, there's a thing called information overload leading to boredom and ennui. I had a piece of national interest that started this whole thing called "Ennui Becomes Us." Um, Now, for domestic politics, uh, the idea that everything is – there's so much information out there in this huge sort of uh, infosphere, billions of channels of everything and everybody talking and we're adding to it with this podcast – what happens is that there's so much information out there, we've almost entered a post-fact society where everything is true, or nothing is, it's very difficult to adjudicate truth in this world. And in fact, you can be terribly wrong about something, wildly wrong, and you can garner just as much information to support your position from the internet, for example, as those that may be more, who are closer to the truth. So this is a kind of a Stephen Colbert called the truthiness, you know, that we've entered a sort of true enough truthiness world um, where if it feels good, then it's okay. Now, how does that affect domestic politics? Well, we see it all the time that, you know, we have the extreme right and the extreme left who are the only ones that really, you know, break through this, all this noise, which is entropy is, is in, in terms of information, is about noise levels, too much noise to information ratio, a high informa- noise to information ratio. And so what happens, most people just tune it out, because if they hear everything in its opposite are true, they just say, they throw their hands up and say, well, I'll do something else, because this is pointless. But the only people remaining in the debate are those on extreme that are taking very uh, uh, extreme positions, and that 's what we see in our politics is that they're they 're incredibly polarized and not practical at all. This is sort of when Fried Zakaria says part of what 's happening with the United States in our decline is not so much our economics which are you know we have a healthy economy we have uh, lots of innovation and a very um, Vibrant uh, economy, but we have a very polarized, dysfunctional politics in this country. And I think, you know, in the book, I, I, I describe in, in, in pretty good detail how entropy is sort of one of the prophecies, the best or a metaphor that best captures what's going on.
1: I've often thought, in in doing something as simple as uh, grading a student paper, what mm-hmm. what the the world that we live in, how how difficult it's become to. Simply teach about the idea of sort of right and wrong and, and, and truth when um, students can can turn to so many different sources of information to support even the most outlandish of arguments. Right, um,
0: right. I, Your I totally book- agree with you, and this is grade inflation. Is that everything becomes okay and and uh, you know uh, there's a sort of relativism relativism about the truth.
1: Yeah, uh, I really enjoyed the book. Uh, for those of you that, that um, were intrigued simply by the description of the cover, which which I absolutely agree, mm-hmm. um, is unlike most political science books, uh, unlike, mo- unlike most uh, university press books that, mm-hmm. that you'll see. Uh, uh, Randall's book, Maxwell's Demon and the Golden Apple, Global Discord in the New Millennium, published by Johns Hopkins Press this year, available at their website and on Amazon. Randy, thank you very much for your time today.
0: Thank you, Heath. It's a pleasure to be with you.